Zoos by H. L. Mencken. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I often wonder how much sound and nourishing food is fed to the animals in the zoological gardens of America every week, and try to figure out what the public gets in return for the cost thereof. The annual bill must surely run into millions. One is constantly hearing how much beef a lion downs at a meal, and how many tons of hair an elephant dispatches in a month. And to what end? To the end, principally, that a horde of superintendents and keepers may be kept in easy jobs. To the end, secondarily, that the least intelligent minority of the population may have an idiotic show to gape at on Sunday afternoons, and that the young of the species may be instructed in the methods of a moor prevailing among chimpanzees, and become privy to the technique employed by jaguars, hyenas, and polar bears in ridding themselves of lice. So far as I can make out, after laborious visits to all the chief zoos of the nation, no other imaginable purpose is served by their existence. One hears constantly, true enough, mainly from the gentlemen they support, that they are educational. But how? Just what sort of instruction do they radiate, and what is its value? I have never been able to find out. The sober truth is that they are no more educational than so many firemen's parades, or displays of sky-rockets, and that all they actually offer to the public in return for the taxes wasted upon them is a form of idle and witless amusement, compared to which a visit to a penitentiary, or even to Congress or a state legislature in session, is informing, stimulating, and ennobling. Education your grandmother! Show me a schoolboy who has ever learned anything valuable or important by watching a mangy old lion snoring away in its cage, or a family of monkeys fighting for peanuts. To get any useful instruction out of such a spectacle is palpably impossible. Not even a college professor is improved by it. The most it can imaginably impart is that the stripes of a certain sort of tiger run one way, and the stripes of another sort some other way, that hyenas and polecats smell worse than Greek busboys, that the Latin name of the raccoon, who was unheard of by the Romans, is Procyon Lotor. For the dissemination of such banal knowledge, absurdly emitted and defectively taken in, the taxpayers of the United States are mulcted in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. As well make them pay for teaching policemen the theory of least squares, or for instructing roosters in the laying of eggs. But zoos, it is argued, are of scientific value. They enable learned men to study this or that. Again the facts blast the theory. No scientific discovery of any value whatsoever, even to the animals themselves, has ever come out of a zoo. The zoo scientist is the old woman of zoology, and his alleged wisdom is usually exhibited not in the groves of actual learning, but in the yellow journals. He is to biology what the late Camille Flammarion was to astronomy, which is to say its court jester and reductio ad absurdum. When he leaps into public notice with some new pearl of knowledge, it commonly turns out to be no more than the news that Marie Bushkertsev, the Russian lady walrus, has had her teeth plugged with zinc and is expecting twins, or that Pish-Posh, the man-eating alligator, is down with locomotor ataxia, or that Damon, the grizzly, has just finished his brother Pythias in the tenth round, chewing off his tail, nose, and remaining ear. Science, of course, has its uses for the lower animals. A diligent study of their livers and lights helps to an understanding of the anatomy and physiology, and particularly of the pathology, of man. There are necessary aids in devising and manufacturing many remedial agents, and in testing the virtues of those already devised. Out of the mute agonies of a rabbit or a calf may come relief for a baby with diphtheria, or means for an archdeacon to escape the consequences of his youthful follies. 
Moreover, something valuable is to be got out of a mere study of their habits, instincts, and ways of mind, knowledge that, by analogy, may illuminate the parallel doings of the genus Homo, and so enable us to comprehend the primitive mental processes of congressmen, morons, and the reverend clergy. But it must be obvious that none of these studies can be made in a zoo. The zoo animals, to begin with, provide no material for the biologist. He can find out no more about their insides than what he discerns from a safe distance and through the bars. He is not allowed to try his germs and specifics upon them. He is not allowed to vivisect them. If he would find out what goes on in the animal body under this condition or that, he must turn from the inhabitants of the zoo to the customary guinea-pigs and street dogs, and buy or steal them for himself. Nor does he get any chance for profitable inquiry when zoo animals die, usually of lack of exercise or ignorant doctoring, for their carcasses are not handed to him for autopsy, but at once stuffed with gypsum and excelsior and placed in some museum. Least of all do zoos produce any new knowledge about animal behaviour. Such knowledge must be got not from animals penned up and tortured, but from animals in a state of nature. A college professor studying the habits of the giraffe, for example, and confining his observations to specimens in zoos, would inevitably come to the conclusion that the giraffe is a sedentary and melancholy beast, standing immovable for hours at a time, and employing an Italian to feed him hay and cabbages. As well proceed to a study of the psychology of a jurist consult by first immersing him in sing-sing, or of a juggler by first cutting off his hands. Knowledge so gained is inaccurate and imbecile knowledge. Not even a college professor, if sober, would give it any faith and credit. There remains, then, the only true utility of a zoo. It is a childish and pointless show for the unintelligent. In brief, for children, nursemaids, visiting yokels, and the generality of the defective. Should the taxpayers be forced to sweat millions for such a purpose? I think not. The sort of man who likes to spend his time watching a cage of monkeys chase one another, or a lion gnaw its tail, or a lizard catch flies, is precisely the sort of man whose mental weakness should be combated at the public expense, and not fostered. He is a public liability and a public menace, and society should seek to improve him. Instead of that, we spend a lot of money to feed his degrading appetite, and further paralyse his mind. It is precisely as if the community provided free champagne for dipsomaniacs, or hired lecturers to convert the army to the doctrines of the Bolsheviki. Of the abominable cruelties practised in zoos it is unnecessary to make mention. Even assuming that all the keepers are men of delicate natures and ardent zoophiles, which is about as safe as assuming that the keepers of a prison are all sentimentalists and weep for the sorrows of their charges, it must be plain that the work they do involves an endless war upon the native instincts of the animals, and that they must thus inflict the most abominable tortures every day. What could be a sadder sight than a tiger in a cage, save it be a forest monkey climbing despairingly up a barked stump, or an eagle chained to its roost? How can man be benefited and made better by robbing the seal of its arctic ice, the hippopotamus of its soft wallow, the buffalo of its open range, the lion of its kingship, the birds of their air. I am no sentimentalist, God knows. I am in favour of vivisection unrestrained, so long as the vivisectionist knows what he is about. I advocate clubbing a dog that barks unnecessarily, which all dogs do. I enjoy hangings, particularly of converts to the evangelical faiths. The crunch of a cockroach is music to my ears. But when the day comes to turn the prisoners of the zoo out of their cages, if it is only to lead them to the swifter kind of knife of the chochette, I shall be present and rejoicing, and if any one present thinks to suggest that it would be a good plan to celebrate the day by shooting the whole zoo faculty, I shall have a revolver in my pocket, and a sound eye in my head. End of Zoos by H. L. Mencken 
read by Jason Mills.